Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Now let me bring on our guest for the afternoon, Patricia von Brandenstein. Uh, thanks very much for coming. Um, I wanted to examine uh, four films, uh, one quite recent and one uh, that uh, going back uh, some years in, in my career and uh, examine some design problems. I almost always set something strongly, visually, in the first reel of a film. And almost without exception, you can see the credits and the first reel of a film uh, that I've worked on, and I think you get a visual gist. You get the beginning of the translation in each of them. The exception is uh, Leap of Faith that has a revelation in in the tent, and we'll, we'll indulge ourselves and see more than one clip for that. The first film is Six Degrees of Separation, um, which enjoyed some success here in New York and, and uh, in, in general release. This film, I am happy to say, was dragged back from Toronto <laughs> by myself and, and uh, Ian Baker, the cinematographer. It was felt that because this was an interior film, uh, it would be so easy to film it in the studio in Toronto. I went to Toronto. And uh, indeed, they have a very uh, a large studio, and uh, I know uh, some of the members of United Scenic Artists have been up there and have seen that. They were anxious to have us and promised us everything. But when it got down to it, how can you make this film in a place other than New York City? Then there was the problem. Because you're wedded in the film absolutely to, to an apartment on Fifth Avenue on the uh, Upper East Side and their world, the character's world, I can tell you that in my years of making films in New York City, there has been a steady uh, decline of acceptance on the Upper East Side, and they do not want to see us anymore. <laughs> we were incredibly fortunate. Um, a consortium of Iranians had commenced to remodel a large Upper East Side building and ran out of money when their assets were frozen and trouble broke out in the Middle East. So the, the uh, building had sat unfinished for a few years. They also had the uh, real estate bust following the, the boom. And um, money being in short supply, they decided to try and sell the apartments. Well, with ceilings of a maximum of eight feet high, uh, there were few takers. 
The apartments were cramped and small, but it was the only building from 105th Street down to 59th that would entertain the idea of having a movie company inhabit their premises. Everyone else said, not only no, but get out of here or we'll call the police. I walked many, many times uh, those 40 or some blocks, and we looked in windows, we looked in doorways, we, we implored uh, people that we knew who might have been on co-op boards along that avenue, and it, it simply was not possible. But I was determined to have that park view. The building we finally uh, made an accommodation with, with the Iranians, was on uh, 86th, and uh, uh, it was a very old building, probably built uh, 1920, just after World War I, but it had been completely gutted so that they could put some more floors in to get the eight-foot ceilings. The air conditioning system was visible and was plastered over in a very simple way. Uh, you can imagine how attractive this was when uh, asking prices of a million and a half, two million dollars. And the rooms themselves were cramped. The director had the wisdom to hire very tall actors, um, Donald Sutherland being 6'4". You can see the difficulties of lighting this, but it was necessary. And I'm happy to say that Ian Baker, who loathed that apartment upon first viewing, as who, who would not, because he had envisioned something grand and beautiful, and, but he soon lost these illusions. And we determined that the best way to treat this was to paint everything the same color and have the same color value so that even though Donald Sutherland was six foot four, we wouldn't see a white ceiling behind his head with a line going across his shoulders, but we would see all of the actors surrounded by the same color. The color is red. There's no question about it. The scenic artist among you will be interested in the formulas that John Ringbaum, our, our master scenic artist, uh, devised for involving dyes and God knows how much pigment. Um, I think it was very difficult to light. I know it was. I heard about it from, from Ian Baker, from Fred Skepsey, from the actors, and from the studio who picked up the phone and said, why have you painted the ceiling red? But I was able to defend it successfully. We, of course, we did test it, and we tested all the fabrics as well. But uh, I'm not saying it was easy to light. It would have been uh, so much easier to shoot if we had not um, been, I think, uh, of necessity, uh, landed on the uh, 11th and 12th and 13th floors of uh, this Iranian apartment building. But I do feel that uh, we got something uh, a, a kind of fidelity of place of Upper East Side life. And uh, uh, blessed be the, the crew that was uh, uh, forced to deal with, with those spaces because it cannot have been easy. But uh, we used um, the center floor as uh, 
as a as it was the set, and the floor below was a support floor, and the floor above uh, also a support floor. And we did some insert work on the uh, on the on the third level. There were a couple of very small terraces, so we were able to light very minimally uh, uh, through the window a couple of times. Um, the film uh, continues telling the story. Um, and as it goes, we again and again, uh, art in many different guises is part of the story. Um, the family involved, uh, the Kitteridge family, are, are he is an art dealer and she is his loyal helpmate. The kids, of course, hate it all. But because art is a constant presence in their life, and a very specific kind of art, the, a, a classic, classic representational, usually impressionistic art from uh, dead white European males, as the saying goes. And um, we were very fortunate in, in being able to have lots and lots of it. People were generous, and um, uh, because I needed this stuff for like three months, so it's not like I could rent it so easily. Uh, but but people were generous, and the skill of uh, uh, the scenic artists also played a part. There's a major scene uh, later on in the film which involves the uh, Sistine Chapel, which was built on a studio on 23rd Street. Uh, looks pretty good. <laughs> looks very good. And was lots of fun to do. Um, I liked particularly working on this film because it... It's a moral dilemma, and there are precious few films that have to do with moral, a moral question that can be resolved. Um, and it was always planned as a, as a commercial enterprise. It was not a limited release or, or considered an art film or whatever, but rather uh, appealed to a broad audience. And uh, I know it did well uh, ac across the country. So I was happy to see that that our concerns in New York can be uh, concerns across the country as well. And um, uh, art uh, and its uh, furtherance are things that are very close to my heart. So I was glad to see that uh, uh, we, th because every piece of art, of which there, there's literally hundreds of pieces throughout the film, and every bit of it was seen. Uh, lit and seen and dealt with by the character. So that's, uh, that's uh, saying something in this day and age. The director is from Australia and knows no rules. He's a great guy. Fred Skepsy, if anybody ever gets a chance to work with him in any way, take it because he's a terrific guy. He's been making films for 25 years. Um, he made many, many films before he hit these shores, but he's got a wealth of experience in directing and producing and writing and very nice person, although a little rough around I mean, it's just a force of nature kind of director. He's wonderful. Ian Baker was tougher, who has also been round the block once or twice. I mean, he's been to two county fairs in one circus, and he knows very well that red especially all of those reds, is, very, is a very difficult proposition. There are actually about uh, 10 uh, different hues um, that are represented. 
um, to give the illusion of depth. And illusion is the right word because God knows that apartment was a proverbial white box. It had no architecture. It had no grace. It had no feeling. And it has damn little now, but it works. It's a cheap old trick to use many different shades of a certain uh, spectrum section and to create the illusion of depth and, and, and complexity. But it's all smoke and mirrors. That, and, and not only was it simplistic in architecture and cramped in space, I was also hampered by the fact that I didn't have a lot of money. I know, I know it looks more luxurious than it, than it was, but I didn't have a lot of money. And we had to move lots of weight-bearing walls to get the camera hither and thither. So it was hard, but uh, uh, Ian Baker is a, uh, I mean, <laughs> we were both riding out there on the rail together, you know, at least. And he was, that's the great thing about working on a film where everybody is making the same movie. And God knows, how often does this happen? I love the film because we knew we were taking a chance by putting six major characters talking in front of surrounded by red for two hours. Um, but if you can take a chance with someone else, it's not as scary. <laughs> and besides that, we did test it. We tested all of it. We also tested the art. We um, enhanced the Kandinsky uh, with Cheroscura because we felt it did not have enough contrast. Um, and some of the other pictures were also subtly, very subtly enhanced. Now, the next we have is another uh, fairly recent film. This film is called Leap of Faith. This film stayed in the theaters about a week. It's no more. And I think this is a classic case. There's a couple of interesting design problems here. The film concerns a charlatan played by Steve Martin, a bogus preacher. And um, this preacher leads a troupe of gospel singers and, and fellow charlatans around the, uh, the, the great, you know, south, midwest. And he... Uh, bilks the citizens out of money that they think is going to a legitimate operation and, of course, is going straight into his pockets. He's not a savory character. And I think there are those who say that he, that probably had a lot to do. The public was not ready to accept Steve Martin as a, as a guy who, would, um, who was quite this bad. There are other things in the film, however. For one thing... The producers, Paramount replaced the producers about uh, a third of the way through the film. Just, just prior, I, uh, I'd say about two weeks in shooting. They also replaced the cinematographer. Um, they replaced the special effects crew eventually at my insistence because I really felt they were incompetent. They replaced... Um, the uh, the grip the gaffer etc. Um, 
I think this film started out to be one thing and wound up another. It has a lot going for it. When you see it, uh, it's got a wonderful gospel choir, terrific music, uh, an interesting premise. The, the charlatan preacher has been going around performing fake miracles. And one night, he performs a real one. And it just scares him to death because he knows he didn't do it. Then the studio also got nervous because they, uh, they couldn't see Steve Martin taking an axe to <laughs> an eight-foot representation of Jesus on the cross in plaster. They got very nervous about it and insisted that the, the, the scene be refilmed. That is what we did, and I think to the detriment of the film. This film had a terrific director, Richard Pierce, guy that I've worked with uh, several times. And uh, Steve Martin is an incredibly attractive star. It also had the attraction of music. Technically, I think, uh, I think the film is interesting because it had black people and white people in a very small space in brilliant light on the exterior scenes in that bus. The scene that you just saw is intercut, studio, and live. It was shot uh, live on location, and it was also shot again in the studio, and it's very cleverly intercut so that the balance of light could be maintained so that everybody's eyes and mouth uh, are coherent and it can be seen, uh, the white people and the black people. It's an interesting problem, and... Uh, something I had never encountered before. It happened to be, here's this bus crammed to the gills with not only um, two different colors of people, but also uh, innumerable goo-gaws and gimcracks plus the computers, and all had different light levels that were necessary. So I think uh, the cinematographer who shot this part, Fred Murphy, uh, did a very good job. Um, the other cinematographer was also, the guy who replaced him was a, is also a good cinematographer, but is not, is known more for um, a straightforward and commercial work and not uh, a poetic interpretation. Now, a lot of times, you know you're working on idiocy and garbage, but I could have sworn that this one was going to make it because I loved it, and we... You cannot imagine the fun we had with that choir who sang incessantly, not just for the camera. These people sang 15 hours a day. <laughs> they sang and they danced and they made us all happy. And we loved this piece of work. We just loved it. And Steve Martin was great. And seven weeks prep, that's one thing. Changing producers, changing cinematographers. Thank God they kept me. But I'm very sorry more people didn't see it because it does have a great deal to offer. When we made the tent, we designed it to go up and come down many, many times like a circus tent. But I didn't want a conventional shape. I wanted a shape that, had, uh, that was cathedral-like. This is a bale pole tent, and the 
support system was welded for us. And um, it really, it's, it looks like rock and roll truss. Because it was uh, two-inch uh, ID steel, we were able to uh, hang our uh, lights, of which there were many, um, on it. And it could be set up and taken down in a very short time. The sequence of putting the tent up, which uh, was not rehearsed, um, but was filmed over three days because it was the first time the tent went up. The engineering was important because that field, we were in the middle of the panhandle, West Texas, otherwise known as Hurricane <laughs> uh, Tornado Alley. And they did roll through regularly every afternoon that summer. But our tent was engineered for 125 mile an hour winds. And I wasn't worried, probably foolishly, because I didn't know too much about tornadoes when I went there. But it was built by a... Uh, some guys uh, in, in in Fort Worth uh, called the, the Sandoni uh, Tent Company, and they are good, believe me. And uh, we had fun with the engineering and working it out. I decided to paint the interior of the tent, uh, the uh, uh, shades of blue and mauve, as if it were the sky, and the blue neon followed. And we had... Uh, some silver stars uh, of uh, adhesive uh, material uh, die cut miles of the stuff and we spent an hour every morning putting up several hundred uh, stars on the top of the tent which accounts for that little shimmer and glimmer it's very pretty anyway I loved it and uh, people who see it do love it um, just not many people see it so <laughs> rent it sometime because it's worth it badly because that was what was reshot at the studio's insistence. And, you know, the director worked on it at such a breakneck pace that I think at the end of it, his judgment wasn't so clear either. I mean, no, nobody's could be, but it was felt that the audience could not accept Steve Martin, because once he works the miracle, and you see in this, in the foregoing scene, you saw what a, a charlatan this crowd, what how awful they all are, and uh, one night on the third night of this uh, of this stand, he does work a miracle, and he's scared to death because he knows he didn't do it, he knows someone did it, but it wasn't him, and he suspicions that they're messing with his mind. Uh, well, actually, it's just a man meeting. Um, uh, the truth for the for the first time and and trying to face it, and uh, he realizes just how bad he is, and in a rage, attacks this plaster representation of Christ on the cross with an axe, and <laughs> it's a very strong and powerful scene, and and um, it was felt that perhaps uh, it was too strong a uh, uh, too strong stuff. Uh, and so it was scrapped, and a very sort of nothing ending was tacked onto it, and I think has a lot to do with its problems. Actually, a film that is being screened uh, later this afternoon, Billy Bathgate, had its ending changed several times. It's interesting. Another film that did not do well.
I think, and it's also always rewritten by other people. So the original, and sometimes even reshot by other people, if the director refuses to do it, it's not the same vision. So now obviously there's got to be a very, uh, an obvious split. So I think it's not good practice. The filmmaker's vision. 1,200 14-year-olds on Friday night in West Covina tell you you've done something wrong. Well, they go back and reshoot it. What can I tell you? I mean, it's the way it is. The next film that I'd like to uh, screen the opening reel of is uh, Silkwood. This film is now about uh, 12 years old. It uh, holds up quite well. Uh, it concerned uh, the events of the last few months of life of uh, a woman named Karen Silkwood, uh, directed by Mike Nichols, written by uh, Nora Ephron. And was was one of the writers on it. I think in the design sense, a very challenging one for me because no one knew exactly what a plutonium factory looked like. There were very few of them, and those that existed is not a place that you're going to drop in and take a tour. In those days, uh, material... Uh, concerning the physical representation of these places had just become available. And I trucked myself off to Washington uh, to the uh, uh, national, what had been the archive of the Ana uh, Atomic Energy Commission, and uh, also went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to Los Alamos, and met a man who had been a chemical engineer and had been one of the original guys in Los Alamos and knew a lot about plutonium uh, production. And he talked, and I drew, and uh, somehow we did come up with a fairly realistic representation. Um, when you see the laboratory in this, uh, 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 the coming clip, bear in mind that it is probably... Uh, two or three times the size of a real plutonium plant, but for the accommodation of the camera and also for dr dramatically to, to show the isolation of this space. I wanted a, a double height space of industrial design, but everything you see is built. It was built in the Dallas Communications Complex in Dallas, Texas, and the opening was filmed in the environs of Dallas. You will be struck by the similarity of the opening of Leap of Faith, which involves buses coming out of the heat distance and over the hill. And in this beginning of this picture, you'll see the car approaching the uh, car approaching the plant in roughly the same kind of shot. At the end of this film, I knew a lot more about plutonium production than I wanted to. And uh, I always figured if I could find that out in my living room, what must the truth be? The, the truth must have been so much worse than what, what I was able to find out in such a limited way for a film. Because there were no guidelines, I didn't know how big a glove box was. I didn't know how long a fuel rod was. I didn't know how big a pellet was. But because all of those things had to be seen on camera, there had to be a protocol established. And that meant that the production line had to be designed in toto. Now, I am the least likely imaginable 
designer for this sort of thing. However, it was an interesting journey, and I much enjoyed myself. I've been told that it is um, amazingly accurate. I can only thank the, the uh, Plutonium Angels and, and the uh, wonderful chemist, whose name was John Anderson uh, from Los Alamos, who helped me a great deal. Because I was, none of us knew a thing. But because it had to be physically realized, um, we all learned a lot in a, in a hurry. And what we didn't learn, we made up. So, so I'm sure that uh, one of the things that I know is not accurate is the size of the place. Um, the real lab was probably um, 100 feet by 20 feet. It, it is obviously... Uh, much to the advantage to keep the place as small as possible because um, there is a negative airflow, which is which is why you can stand up and, and in the place and actually do it. And uh, a smaller space is much easier. Um, but dramatically speaking, I think our space works better than a very confined space. And 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 as it was, the cinematographer and many other people complained about the claustrophobic feeling. Of, uh, of being in the set uh, because it's smaller than what they were accustomed to working on. But uh, uh, even as it was, it's three times as big as a pl the, the real plutonium uh, factory line. Um, the contrast of the enclosed space, claustrophobic in every way, oppressive, prison-like, um, Absence of pigment, absence of color, a kind of deadening of the senses that takes place in the plutonium factory, which for all intents and purposes could be an oatmeal factory. It could be a kibble factory. It is not the, I think the key to it was the fact that this, these people were ignorant of the extreme danger in which they worked. To make them behave normally, I don't think they could have reacted as they do in the film uh, in, in the real environment. It would simply would have been too dangerous. But the emotions expressed are natural ones, and they are inhibited in the factory atmosphere. Contrast that with the pastoral and rather lyric quality of the house where they live, which is only a very little humble frame house, but it is a house where a family lived once. Karen is trying to make a new family. She is trying to redeem herself by this job in the factory and by her relationship with Dolly and with her boyfriend. And uh, they are trying to make an instant family. And of course, there is no family that's instant. It, it's only the long, hard, slow way that something like that is created. I wanted the natural world contrasted with the world of the factory. And again and again, you see the hominess of even uh, a, a kind of artificial uh, love that is uh, uh, projected by these three characters toward each other. And in the factory, everything, all natural and human emotions are sucked out in the, the, the scramble of production and the scramble to stay alive. I think the film uh, 
is accurate to the story as we know it, but subsequent to the film, we've found out a lot of things about Karen Silkwood, things that I knew uh, before the film was made. I think she was uh, not an innocent. I think she uh, had some severe personality quirks, and I'm not sure. I think the film tells a true story as far as we knew it, but I don't think it's the true story. <laughs> And I must say, I think I'm in a minority on that. But nonetheless, I remember when I went to Washington to the AEC, there's a huge log that's kept and, and they write uh, violations on yellow slips. And the the two years she worked in that factory, if you pulled out all the yellow slips, it always had her name on it. So somehow or another, she was not uh, the heroine that she's made out to be. It was not. It was the most boring envelope factory imaginable. And the, the top two stories were built. Uh, it's built as a corner piece and simply stuck up there. And imagine our surprise. One night there was a windstorm. And in fact, it had just sucked the whole thing up and took it away. So we redesigned it and rebuilt it. But it's a boring and... and um, very simple building, almost like a butler building, and uh, the top the top shaft, which would have represented the double height room, that was built. The exterior of the Dallas communications complex was not suitable, but the interior, which was unpainted concrete, because we were the first film in there, and we used the architecture of certain parts of the Dallas communications system, their loading docks and so forth, those were used almost as is and redressed. Um, however, all the interior scenes that you see involving the entry and the bathrooms and the cafeteria, not to mention the lab itself, all that is, uh, that is built. As is everything in it. The glove boxes, first bids on the glove boxes that came in were so extraordinarily high that, I mean, they were really like $50,000 a piece, which would have been absurd for a film company. So we finally, we kept chewing away at the design and we, we, we solved the problem. We made them out of cardboard. They were the flimsiest things imaginable. Cardboard and plastic uh, lenses through, through the glasses. And uh, uh, so it was a very simple approach and a very inexpensive approach. It was just the uh, um, the line itself, which was manufactured out of spare parts from Los Alamos. Uh, and it had some authenticity. But because the parts were scrapped, because they didn't work in the first place, you see we had to get things working so that it would move and crank and go back and forth and up and down and so forth. The process involves a... a both in this film and in most other films that I've I've worked on, involves lengthy, extensive discussions and visual aids. That is to say, you come to the film when you are hired to do it with a kind of set vision. One assumes that this is why they want you, because during the initial interviews, you've come forth with a plan, with an idea about the script that might illuminate or or um, uh, enhance some portion of the script. I think that it is inherent in the material, and I remember on the first meeting uh, with Mr. Nichols and uh, the writers and the producer, 
we did bring this up, but it's not beautiful. It's not lyrical. So that's why we put her on a small farm. So it's playing with the truth, but it is a dramatic truth. So that part was my idea. But the idea of contrast is inherent in the material and was also emphasized strongly on our first meeting by Mr. Nichols. I adapt it as much as he wants it. It is not a solo flight, ever. At least one hopes not. It is always, and certainly any, anything I've ever worked on, it has always been an interactive experience with a cinematographer and the director, and very often, more and more, the producer, because the money involved has become another character, another player. And I don't mean this in a pejorative way. I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe that's good. I think you have a responsibility about it. I think you cannot frivolously uh, ignore that part of it. But more than that, it certainly has to be, at the, at the minimum, it has to be a triumvirate. Let's hope the director's in charge. But nonetheless, it would not occur to me to design and build a set without the step-by-step -step assurance and, uh, and help and, and approval and a, a, a concordance between, between us. And I would hope that, because I like to use models, and very often uh, a cinematographer can tell tremendous uh, things from, from a model. And I think even the crudest and simplest model is better than just a floor plan. So I always try to do one, even for, even for sets that are not considered major sets. But sometimes you can really tell something. And of course, with the, with the technology, visual technology that we have today, this is a very easy thing to do. We can accomplish one in a couple of hours. It will be crude, and it's just Xerox, but nonetheless... It, it really makes a difference into how he sees space. Some people are not talented in 3D. One does question the wisdom of them becoming film directors, but nonetheless, <laughs> let us help them. Let us, let us help them. Some directors have a, a very strong uh, spatial sense and uh, uh, can tell a lot from a sketch, and that's, a, that's okay too, but I really do believe because you move through the space, I think a model is the way to go. And the simpler, the better. And a white model, not a colored one. <laughs> because if the design can stand on its own in white space, it, it has much more validity. Because color can fool you. I've been doing it for years. <laughs> oh, for sure, if they come out of the director. If they come out of the director. If it's some guy in an office just drawing pictures, it means nothing. In this very complex, I did a film. There was a storyboard artist, very skilled, very likable, very nice, who did the most wonderful pictures. But they meant nothing because they were not the directors. And I don't mean that the director has to draw. Um, Brian De Palma 
does it with stick figures and pol uh, Xeroxes of his Polaroids. He does it very, very simply. But because it comes out of him, it really means something. Dick Pierce, the director I told you about in Leap of Faith, does his own. It's very, you know, I mean, he does his own. And they're always valid. He knows exactly the, the shots. Remember in the bus where you see the, peep, the choir through the window and then coming down with a bar of lights on the police car into going inside the car where the, the, the scene with the, uh, Steve Martin and the cop are played. That, I remember that because it's, I remember him drawing it on the plane. <laughs> and uh, I remember drawing it with him. So I, th I, I love them and welcome them, and I think they're the best, but I think a director has to be involved, preferably physically, but at least his brain. They're usually done quite early on because the director is so busy later. He's involved with me. He's involved with, you know, other people on the film. And usually they're done before, although they can be revised. The film that I did in Arizona last year with uh, Sam Raimi, uh, those storyboards we worked on until the day they were shot. We kept revising them. But we all had a very clear idea of what was going to happen because of them. And I assure you, extraneous shots were not, were not uh, used at all. He really knew from the, from, from the moment I met him, I saw storyboards on the wall. So other times, I think uh, they, they come later. But if they come later, it's not as good because it means it's not coming out of the director. Yes, I, you can in, influence geography, yeah, for sure. You can design it in such a way that he's got to do it. You know, he's got to go this way, this way, and this way, if that's the way the hall goes. But again, I say, this is not necessarily a good idea. If it comes out of the script, if it comes out of the words and the need of the story, yes, you can help somebody by giving him something that illuminates. But don't do it just because it looks good. Because I think the film will, have, will not have a fidelity of place. I don't think the designer's ego... It sounds great to say it, doesn't it? But <laughs> it shouldn't be involved. And it sounds great to say... And, but it's something we all are fighting against because unfortunately the better you get the more you want to express the columns and the canopies and the portico and the litter and the train and the feathers and I mean you know it's fun and it's nice it's not necessarily what you need for the story it's a hard discipline there really almost have to be two different def definitions you know William Cameron Menzies was the first man who had a title of production designer. It was given to him by the studio because I think the studio wanted to express how much of an influence and how responsible he was during the filming of Gone with the Wind. Since then, it became a negotiated title on the West Coast. and the East Coast, it was always, you were an art director, and just since I've been around, uh, that which is to say, the last 20 years or so, 
it has become usual to call a person of a production designer if you are the head of the visual effect of the film, if you are the chief of uh, visual uh, technology. Um, the art director now has become a kind of right hand and first lieutenant and uh, best friend, a, a sort of temporary marriage, if you will. But you want someone to carry out your, uh, your ideas and to be faithful to them. You want a technician, but you also want an artistic partner. One hopes they will see the film in the same terms that you do. If they do not, you could change art directors or they could submit to your ideas. Sometimes an art director that works with me might say, Patrizia, you're making a huge mistake here. Not often, because, you know, you work together, so you have the same kind of vision. Um, an art director has a fiscal and a technical responsibility that it gets more important. The bigger the film gets, the more important that part of it is. Um, but in television, even on uh, a fairly uh, sizable production in television, like television film, you can still be just an art director and you will have the top job. It's becoming more usual to call that a production designer as well. There's a distinct difference. Production designer translates the film visually, cooperates with the director of photography and with the director, represents the film visually, represents the film artistically, and that is your main responsibility. There's a fiscal one too, but uh, it's an organizational one, not especially a technical one. And that's Sorry for all the words, but I think uh, I think it requires that to explain the difference. In my experience, usually the director, sometimes the producer will introduce you to the director. That that can happen very often, or you sort of all know each other, but you haven't worked with them before. Um, sometimes you will just do something that somebody happens to see. When I did sneakers, it was because they had seen Silkwood and they loved the look of the lab and they wanted, uh, they wanted that kind of sensibility. They, no, none of them knew me at all. Now we're old buddies, but in those days they didn't know me at all. I've tried hard to do different kinds of films, so hopefully there will be an exposure and eventually enough people know you and they call you back. <laughs> I was a set designer for theater and a costume designer. And I had a, a very a strong ambition to, uh, to work in films. Um, I was a scenic artist uh, on, uh, that I worked in, in television and films. I worked here in New York. And I worked at the Metropolitan Opera as a, as a painter. I 
kept wanting to do it and kept putting myself in places where I, I told everybody I met, <laughs> you know, they laughed. And, but eventually I met some people who were very influential for me and believed in what I could do. And I also made... I also worked on a lot of things nobody wanted to do, so it, I was cheap. So they and so they gave me a chance. And once you have a body of credit, you have a, some work to show. It gets much easier because you can you have something to offer. It isn't, as they say, a pig and a poke. So they're not they're not buying something they don't know no matter how much you might like someone's artistic representations, because of the implications of on your budget, you really have to make sure that this person can actually do it. So it's hard to get that first break. And it's just by persistence and luck. But I had an art background and a theater background before I started working on films. I do. I stay to the very last day. And unless I have a nervous breakdown, in which case, <laughs> no, 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 I've never, had, I've never done that. Um, I, yeah, I'm there. I'm there all the time. Um, I'm, I'm there all the time. I'm there in the crew call in the morning, and I'm there when they leave at night. It will be set up long before they arrive. I hope. <laughs> Yes, I am there because very often things will change. Very often that teapot that you thought was so wonderful is not. And so there's this blood-curdling thing going on. But, you know, on the set, everything is lovely. But, I mean, off stage, there's a lot of breastfeeding going on. So, yeah, and actually that's why you want to be there as much as possible. Obviously, if you're doing location work, you can't be all the time. You have to go and check the locations. But generally, I, I try to stay until the room is set up before I take off for the rest of the day. And then I return after lunch, and I return at the end of the day when we all go off to see dailies together. So, so it, is a, it is a long day and with a lot of responsibility, but I like to be there because I don't trust them. So, <laughs> no, you can't trust them. Even the good ones you can't trust. I mean, even people that you would trust to pull you out of a chasm of burning pitch, you still can't trust them with, uh, on a movie set. So just remember that, everybody. I mean, you can't. It's good. Just be there. Just, yeah, sure, no. You do it, you do it as soon as you know about it. If they... If they are uncertain about a design or if they're uncertain about things, they, w they will tell you if they have any sort of respect for you. They will tell you why it is to their advantage to keep you, to tell you as soon as they possibly know. Sometimes they don't. That's because they're creative. <laughs> uh, but no, most of the time you know ahead of time and you do your best to change it. Very often things can be accomplished in a very minimal way. I mean... They're not going to say, let's change the prison to the grand ball. Not in my experience, anyway. <laughs> um, there, there are changes that can be done. There's a lot that can be done even on the set. You can do it with colors of light. You can do it with a quick paint job. Just change it. It's all right. Sure. It was a, a, a tremendous experience for me to work with him because 
I had met him a couple of times, but it had never worked out that we could work together. The Mr. Almendros that you saw in interviews, and, and, and he would make various public appearances, and he was, to me, even, if anything, he was more charming, more kindly, and more humane in his real life than he was in his public life because he was shy and he, but he was, um, um, it, it was a tremendous art, artistic experience for me to, to work closely with him. Um, I just have tremendous regret that the film did not get wider distribution because I think his work is superb and I am quite fond of mine, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, it is a film that I think can be seen for quite a while. It doesn't work on every level, but it is a good film, and God knows it is beautiful. Nestor did so many beautiful films that this is just one among many, but for me, it was, it, it's really a, um, it's a high point, it was a high point of my life. So I, I, uh, I miss him very, very much, and I think the artistic world misses him too. So, but if I, I'll, I'll get teared up if I start talking about him more, <laughs> because he was a friend. That's a good question. I tell you, the real problem here is not that the skills are not transferable, but in films, you are telling a story, and that is your primary obligation is to tell the story and to tell it in visual images. Interior designers, that is not what they do. That is not the purpose of their work. I think architects have the same kind of thing. I think the theater is a very good background for films. I think television is a good background for films because it's a storytelling medium. I think the problem is forgetting what is correct or even what is pleasing to the eye in the sense of interior design, of making a pleasing environment and tell the story. The story is the thing. And actually, when you get down to it, it's the only thing. I mean, that's what we're doing here. We're ampl amplifying a story. So I don't think it serves you well, except that it gives you good sources and good discipline, good tools. And I think every background is a good one. Art is good, and theater is good, and design is good, and graphics is good, and magazine design is good. All of those things are applicable, but the major thing is storytelling. And that's why I think sometimes people come from a design, a pure, purely design or interior design or architectural background, and they don't understand why it doesn't, because they can, they can make the image, but it's not a translation. It doesn't tell a tale. Yes, yes, actually I have, except that's pretty recent and kind of feeble desire, if you know what I mean. I... I think I was very, very fortunate because I got to do what I wanted to do in this world and what I set out to do. It seems churlish to want more, but 
yeah, um, the, the, it crosses my mind. But it's got to be the world's hardest work. So I suppose I fear it. I, if I didn't, I would go out there and be trying to do it, you know. There, there is a directorial element to production design. But, I mean, you, you can see that. So, but, I mean, one, you know, one meeting with a studio person would probably send me into some sort of, I don't know, I'm not sure I could do it. But anyway, uh, yeah, it, it crosses my mind, but so far I haven't done anything about it because I'm afraid. <laughs> I fear. Ragtime is a film that I made uh, with uh, Milos Forman and Miroslav Andrzejczyk, who I really genuflect when I, you know, I, these are people who were very, very important to my uh, development artistically, and they are people that I, to this day, I have immense respect for and I love very much. Ragtime was um, certainly the biggest job I had had up to that point. It was made in two countries. It was made in England and it was made in the U.S. Um, I made the part in the U.S. And then I also went to England to assist on the rest of the film. I began to see a greater vision that there was a point to all this suffering in ragtime. And um, I love the film. The first time I saw the the film uh, cut together was three and a half hours long, and the time flew by as if it were 30 minutes. But at the insistent, the studio, Paramount, already had a three and a half hour film at that time, so they wanted it cut, and it was cut. And it seemed slower at two and a half hours than it did at three and a half. Why is that? Originally, the story cons was, was divided into roughly four overlapping groups of people. In the final version, it focused on Colehouse Walker and his relationships with the rest of the people in the story and how their lives were all affected by this one event. To this day, I love it very much. It, it is. It, it has a kind of irresistible gusto uh, that I find very appealing. I think uh, it's an interesting technique that about two-thirds of uh, the black and white footage that Cole House is playing the piano in accompaniment to was created using a variety of techniques some of them so simple, like a pencil waving in front of the projector and then filming it. It's just amazing to me. But virtually uh, undetectable from the documentary footage. The sets in England are were very large and uh, mass crowd scenes. The domestic uh, interiors, by and large, were filmed here. But also there is an extended sequence on the Lower East Side, also filmed here in the U.S., and uh, the sequence by the, by the seaside involving the early filmmakers, uh, also filmed uh, on the New Jersey coast. Uh, but a grand time and 26 weeks of, of <laughs> a lot of fun on two continents. Cheap. Sure. <laughs> Yes, uh, the dollar was advantageous at the time, and um, 
uh, in terms of uh, the vast numbers of extras that we needed. For instance, the, um, the roof, the Madison Square Garden roof, which was recreated in England, needed, I think, close to a thousand extras to get that crowd. And it was possible to do it there for one thing, the size of the stages, and it was not possible to do it here. Also, numbers of costumes, uh, which the numbers were huge, and uh, we need numbers of Edwardian costumes. Uh, the Harry K. Thaw dinner is done, uh, the, the, where Harry K. Thaw bursts in on uh, uh, Stanford White. The interior done uh, in England on the stage, and the approach and exterior done here in the U.S. And there's a great deal of that playing back and forth, back and forth. The suburban house, the lovely Victorian house that you see was also done here uh, in its entirety in Mount Kisco, <laughs> just inside the 60-mile limit. And uh, this is a, a vast and very rich film. So uh, there's more. Rent it. I keep hearing rumors of it, and uh, the the producer, uh, Michael Hausman, occasionally says that Milch has done some work on it. I don't know, but I I think it would be a very good idea, in fact. I'd love to see that. Yes, yes, that was done in England. And also, um, you know, we approached the Morgan Library here, despite various problems, but the central plot point is the fact that they blow up and set fire to the Morgan Library. And they perhaps thought that this was not exactly the best thing to do. You know, Miller's is a real iconoclast. I mean, he's always bombing something or setting fire to it or whatever. So, you know, I think they were just terribly nervous about the subject matter. They were not unsympathetic. And I think it could have been accomplished in ways that better than what we had to do in England, which was blood on the tracks. But it gave us a very viable exterior. Remember, at the time of the film, the Morgan Library is a year or two old. The trees are saplings, and the, the Polish embassy and the different buildings around uh, uh, look considerably different. Um, in particular, that attractive 1950s-style apartment house across the street would not have been admissible. So um, I think it was probably necessary in the end to build it. I think it was the right decision. And there were hundreds of extremely talented people who worked on those sets in England, and of which I only arrived at the very at the last minute to throw some flowers around. I mean, that was not part of my work. The sets in, in New York, I had my own work, believe me. So um, John Graysmark, the production designer, was a very talented man, and as well as the numerous art directors. I, I, I must say, I did think it was interesting that here in New York, uh, you understand I had one art director. It's interesting, isn't it? A one decorator. And they had at least 15 people over there, at least in the art department, all drawing away and doing things. It made me wonder, but 
I don't know. I guess we're just used to abuse over here or whatever. I don't know. But the, I did notice that the crews were, in, were vast there. Of course, they were doing very large scenes. There is that in explanation. And the sets themselves were physically quite large, whereas our sets were smaller, probably a great deal more detailed. But, uh, but just in terms of physical size, except for the Lower East Side, they were, they were smaller. Um, but it's interesting. You'll see a lot of familiar faces there. Elizabeth McGovern, who plays Evelyn Nesbitt, Debbie Allen, who has become a director choreographer herself, and many, many people. And Milos knows how to pick them. It was uh, Nestor's last film, and it was damn near mine because it just about killed me. Um, when a film is not widely seen, especially one that is very beautiful and that you have taken into your heart. I don't know how you could possibly work on something for nine months and not take it into your heart, unless you were more cold-hearted than I am, that's for sure. But this film particularly, I loved very much. Probably because of my experience with Ragtime, and Dr. O, and this was another Dr. O piece. And more than any other writer working now, Dr. O achieves characters and achieves plot by a precise description and rendering of events and places and things, most of all, objects and places. When people said, don't you want to read his new novel? I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think I've got it in me for a third one. <laughs> so you ask yourself again and again, what went wrong? And what part did you have in going wrong? And I can't answer it. It's too close to me. The film is not only beautiful, it has merit in other ways, um, besides its physical appearance and Nestor's remarkable work. It has merit. But it gets down to the fact that not wide numbers of people went to see it. The name of the film is Billy Bathgate, and it is Billy's story. There is a strong focus on another character, on Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz, played by a charismatic star, Dustin Hoffman, and played well, but perhaps inappropriately. But it is not Billy's story. It is not Billy. And the name of the film is Billy Bathgate, and structurally it was focused as Billy's story. And I tell myself that that's the reason or that must be the reason. But I don't know. I don't think I could. But I've certainly tortured myself enough with it. Um, the film was delayed in production by uh, uh, actually a, quite a substantial delay of three months. At the studio's uh, insistence, we again went to Canada. Those of you who were present in the last hour uh, 
know that uh, it, we played the same thing in, in six degrees of separation. We went up there and we tried to see it and shoot it and this and that and the other thing. In Billy Bathgate, we not only went up there, but we designed it and we started building. We had crews up there painting and sawing and drilling in uh, outside Montreal. And then when Dustin's name was on the, the dotted line, and it became uh, obvious that he wanted certain changes in the script and there would be a rewrite, and Benton had to do it. Um, and it was agreed by all concerned, I, I believe, that it was a good thing for him to redo the script. It, we had to delay, and the weather was going to catch up with us. So we went, changed our schedule, delayed our production, we started filming in Saratoga, New York, and then to New York City and its environs, and then down to North Carolina. And North Carolina is where the studio work was done and where the, uh, the small town represented in the film. It is called Onondaga. It is a mythical town. There is no real Onondaga, but it, it's a small town called Hamlet in North Carolina. Um, we wound the film in uh, around the 1st of March, quite a bit over schedule, over schedule by about uh, three or four weeks. And in May, we returned and did reshoots in New York City. And I believe in July, they were further reshoots. By this time, I had abandoned hope, you know, <laughs> and I was not involved in the last period of reshoots. Very painful, but very beautiful. In New York, I, I think essentially you can often do with fewer people. Where And I think in Los Angeles, I think you need more people. I think the distances are greater. It takes greater time to traverse. It takes, uh, it takes, I think art directors have more responsibility. They have some of the, the uh, responsibilities uh, that are assumed by construction coordinators in California, and I think that, that makes a difference. Um, and also, decorators in California have substantial staff, so they take, there's also that to, to pick and choose from. That, that department has to be staffed with your blessing, or at least your knowledge, hopefully. If That's if things are going really well. <laughs> I have a lot to say about a costume designer. Depending on the film, I have everything to say. Um, if it's a costume designer that is an artistic presence in their own right and somebody the director has worked with, obviously, why wouldn't I be delighted to work with them? Other times, the director is less sure, and I have a chance to say, I think you, we should interview so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, but it is not my decision per se, after all, Many uh, commercial films will have um, leading players, stars, that have a great deal. The leading lady will have a lot to say about the costume designer. In a contemporary film, particularly, um, in a period film, it's generally up to, to the director, the cinematographer, and myself. Be that as it may. I always have opinions, and I always voice them until they tell me to be quiet. So. Um, I, I always say it, whether it's heated or not, it's another story.
I really don't. Actually, my preference is to be out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> There's less arguments. <laughs> uh, my last New York film was uh, was Six Degrees, um, and then I went to Arizona, and then I went to Florida uh, on a film called Just Cause. So it can be anywhere. I don't think it makes a great deal of difference. I think it, the difference is in the approach and the tack that you take. But there's no question that California has the studios. If we had studios, we too could have that kind of industry here, but we don't. Take heed, build studios. There have been more than one film that I've had to that I've had to leave town because there was no studio space. I'd want to be remembered as somebody who worked, for, kept on working. That's what I'd like, and not burnt out, and not get hateful, and not get mean, and still believe that anything was possible. That's what I'd like to be remembered for, because it's the magic, it's the illusion. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.